What skills do you need to see through the lies of woke culture? Hi, I'm Peyton Luke, and this is First Liberty Live. Today, we're going to hit a hot topic of woke culture. What is it exactly? How did this become a prevalent ideology in our society? And what agendas are behind it? Today, I have joining me Noelle Maring, who is the author of Awake, Not Woke, and is a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. She's a researcher and a thought leader in this area, so she is a perfect candidate for this discussion. Hi, Noelle, and welcome to First Liberty Live. Hi, Peyton, thanks for having me. Absolutely, I'm excited to dive into this topic with you today, because I feel like a lot of people are seeing woke culture coming up, whether it's in as an employee, whether it's sometimes coming against their church or even in their schools, parents are coming up against it. So I just wanna start back at the foundation of wokeism and just ask, what does woke mean? And where did the term even come from? Yeah, good question. I think most people understand it's in reference to the hot button issues of the day from CRT, critical race theory, to radical gender ideology that we're seeing all over the place now. But it really is an old reformulation of some pretty old ideas. Uh, the term is relatively new. It started in uh, the popular mind with regard to racism, but it now has expanded to include all of the radical sexuality. So in my book, I go through the history of it. Um, you know, I think you can define it by the, the fall of man in the garden. But um, the, the thought influences are, are rooted in someone named Hegel and, of course, Karl Marx, as well as Sigmund Freud and postmodernism. So it's kind of a lot to sink your teeth into. But I, I try to define it by characterizing it by three main characteristics. One is that it divides us all into it defines us by division. We're not defined by things that unite us. We're not defined as through universals, as you know, rational animals, or made in the image and likeness of God. Rather, we're defined um, by the not by the love of God, but by the hatred of society. So we're defined based on the hatred that is around us or within us, and exposing that hatred is part of the getting woke. How you get woke. The second characteristic is that we're defined as needing to be freed from the oppression of immoral law. So the ways in which we conform ourselves to traditional norms of sexuality. So this really makes our ability to transgress, particularly in sexual matters, a hallmark of our liberty and a matter means of, of progression. And then thirdly, we're defined outside of all sorts of hierarchical norms, ostensibly. Of course, this sort of totalitarian ideology always ends with authoritarianism and some people having a very small group of people having all the power. but ostensibly it is rejection of any sort of hierarchy or authority that's built around a common good. And I think it's so interesting the part you said about creating distrust between different groups because I feel like the woke agenda kind of intentionally sometimes stirs up um, distrust and anger between different groups. So I wondered what does the woke agenda have to gain from that? Yeah, it, it's a great question. They actually really have everything to gain from that. They want to foster in everyone a suspicion of each other. I um, mean, you know, it's a way of isolating us from one another. It's also a way of stirring up grievances. Um, so, so the more that we are suspicious of the power dynamics within our marriage, within our families, within our communities, our institutions, within our nation as a whole, the more that we are willing to um, 
to uh, dismantle them, dismantle any sort of you know power context that we might find ourselves in. So this serves the revolutionary ideology well, for one thing, because it makes people real enemies of one another. Um, but it's also aided and abetted by a real attack on things that stabilize us, like our family life. So the more that people belong, grow up feeling that they don't belong somewhere, that they're not deeply loved, that they're not loved in an, un in an unconditional way, that they're not a particular person uh, who's known and named by people who love them, they become really unmoored. And so they their their politics become more ferocious, right? Because they pulled into like a sense of belonging that can be found in this sort of political tribalism. We're all susceptible to tribalism, but you know, I, I think the faith or Christianity is a corrective for that. Traditional norms of society are corrective for that tri tribalism. For the woke movement, it's really a feature. It's not a bug. They want to exasperate that sort of division. And you mentioned that traditional values um, are kind of healing in that manner. But why has the woke culture kind of reframed religious values or traditional values as being hateful values? Yeah, you know, I, th I think the faith and the family are really t um, explicitly targeted. You see this in the literature of Karl Marx and Engels. But you also see it in a lot of postmodern writing. You know, there's a, a lot of uh, critical theory is oriented around abolition of the family um, and also toppling of religion. Because I think family and the faith really root us. They give us a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose, a sense of um, that our, our bodies mean something, that there is an objective truth to which we must bend our knee, something to reverence, something above us. And if that is left in the cultural ethos, if we all, if we remain a religious society, it's really hard for a tyrannical regime to gain power because then they're subject to that sort of objectivity and that sort of authority and that's not what they want they want to claim the authority for themselves in order to become authoritarians um, so it really behooves the ideology to make people rootless to make them not have that sort of grounding because once we're isolated then we are much easier to control Mm -hmm. And honestly, I find it kind of um, ironic that wokeism often values conformity over individuality because there's almost like a facade and a pride of, oh, individualism or you do you or, you know, speak your truth and things like that. Like there's a facade of individuality. But at the end of the day, if you're a person of faith, standing on your own and you're not conforming to those certain thoughts, suddenly you're the wrong one that's a hater and you need to conform to their thought process. So what are your thoughts on that? That's really well put. I mean, I think you're exactly right. There is a facade of wanting diversity, um, but it's really a diversity of a politicized identity, right? So it's different people in different particular politicized groups that all embrace the same way of thinking. Um, so it's really conformity to an ide ideology they want, but with people from different groups all conforming and vocalizing that same ideology. They don't really want diversity of thought or debate or argumentation. In fact, they write uh, regularly about how um, the dominant voices should not be given an equal voice. They should be silenced mm. because they have the position of power. And so part of critical theory is censorship, silencing, deplatforming, not engaging in dialogue, debate, or true intellectual diversity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I also find it interesting that a lot of people come at it if they're within the woke culture, that they're a victim somehow. So what are your thoughts when it comes to that mentality? Yeah, it's exactly right. I think in my the, my first sort of definition of the woke movement that is uh, the group identity over the individual to the detriment of the individual, it really creates this uh, 
uh, this um, ethos that our moral stature is found in ways we can claim a victim identity. Um, so I, I have a big, it's according to the movement, you know, you, you have a, a greater position of seeing truth or seeing reality if you are great, more greatly oppressed. And the more privilege you have, the less access you have to truth or to reason. So you really have to be silenced. Um, so this really creates an incentive to be able to define ourselves as victims. Well, one of the really unhealthy parts of that or consequences of that is that if I have to be a perpetual victim, I have to be perpetually unmasking the evil in other people outside of myself. I have to identify myself as someone who's always willing to accuse. Um, and, and that's a really dangerous and sinister place to encourage citizens to go. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, we're a religious liberty law firm. And, you know, we have had clients that have been fired because they're not one. It's not that they're just being quiet about, but they're not celebrating or encouraging the woke culture, even if they've asked for religious accommodations, like you're not encouraging um, this sort of agenda. And then suddenly they'll experience changes from their employer. And if they don't abide by those policies, then they're just gone. Um, so with these cases in mind, what does woke culture mean for the future of religious liberty in America? Yeah, that's a, it's such an important question. I really think that it means the extinguishing of religious liberty, ultimately, unless this movement is stopped and, um, and defied and resisted, you know, in, in, with a great contingent of people and companies and um, groups like yourself shining a light on what's happening. Um, because they really, you know, the goal is not to have religious liberty or liberty, liberty at all. You know, it, it are kind of introduced itself as a means of tolerance. Let's tolerate everyone, tolerate this group, tolerate that group, tolerate this behavior, tolerate this um, belief. Um, but that was always a Trojan horse. It was a means of gaining a certain credibility and normalization to the point where, uh, and also power, um, and to the point where once that, that sort of shift started happening, then it becomes a movement of silencing. So the, the tolerance is only supposed to last as a means to an end, and the end actually is ideological power, and ideological capture of our institutions. So I think that that's what we're seeing now is this sort of shift um, away from liberty, away from particularly religious liberty, as you say. Um, and I think the good news is that more and more people are seeing it and waking up to it. And that's interesting, too, because they're almost calling for more liberty or more liberation. But at the end of the day, they're almost silencing it and squelching it long term. That's that's fascinating. Fascinating. Thank you for putting that so well. Um, overall, I is there anything in particular that you think most people don't fully understand about wokeism or its threats? When you have these conversations with people, what do you think are some of the biggest misunderstandings? Well, I think one of the most confusing ones and most common ones is that it, this is a movement of compassion. You know, I think that, that they really have claimed the mantle of love and compassion quite effectively and quite loudly and also rather militantly. And so it becomes really intimidating because most people, I think, you know, particularly if you have some sort of religious background, um, you know, being compassionate and being a loving person is not incidental to what you believe. It's at the very core of what you believe. You know, we believe that we are defined by love. And so to have an ideology that claims all of the ground of love and compassion and put positions by implication, everyone else as being on the side of hatred and bigotry, that's a really um, tricky place for a person to find himself or herself. But I think that makes it all the more important to see through it. 
you know, it's 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 one thing to claim the mantle of love. It's one another thing to actually be implementing ideas that are going to lead to people's flourishing and and um, to really be truly loving them. Uh, and you know, I, I, that's something I really think about a lot and talk about in the book um, is how much this movement does not have the good of the person at heart in any manner or form. It really is a movement of weakening people. It disempowers them in some ways by infantilizing them but in other ways of removing any sort of meaning from their lives my efforts don't mean anything because everything is attributable to systemic forces outside of myself so what does it matter what i do i should just rage and burn blow things up another way it removes meaning is it says your body doesn't fundamentally mean anything this is pretty clear in the transgender movement but it was also in the sexual revolution you know sex is meaningless it only means what two people consenting with one another uh, believe it to mean well, you know, everyone knows that that's a lie. And that's why we have so many women who are so miserable and and, dis- and feeling um, used because they know that, that what they did, you know, ostensibly casually actually was meaningful and they feel hurt and they feel used. Men go through this too. Um, but it's just another example of telling people the deepest intimacy in your relationships is something that is fundamentally meaningless or it can mean anything, which means it means nothing. Um, so there's, there's multiple ways in which the level, the movement removes the sense of meaning um, from people's lives and and that really leaves them with a lot of despair so i think we have to see through this lie that this is a movement of compassion we have to see it and we have to be able to identify it so that we won't be fooled by it what is your call to action to people that might be watching this or reading your book to where we can maintain the america that we know and love and the traditional values mm-hmm. Well, my first call to action sometimes will fall as a seem as like an unsatisfying answer, but I do mean this deeply. I think this is a spiritual battle, and so we have to really cling tightly to our faith. Um, we have to be be meeting it not with the means of pure politics, but also with prayer and with raising our families well, raising our children to be brave people who tr- cling to the truth. Um, but we also do have to have a political and practical response through the means of lawsuits, um, through the grassroots efforts that we see happening at school board meetings. These are good things and innovative um, solutions I hear regularly about people who are coming up with new ways to fight this. And I, so I think the more that we encourage that sort of innovation um, and strong resistance is going to be to our betterment. And then thirdly, I think that we really have to be promoting a positive vision of what a good life is. They have effectively promoted their vision of what life ought to be through oppression, repeating oppression narratives. And, you know, 90 percent of the movies that come out of Hollywood are structured around some sort of oppression narrative and television shows and all these things. But ultimately, their vision of the good life is rather negative. It's a destructive. It's um, there are bad things out there and we have to topple them. We have to reject them. We have to deconstruct what it means to be a person. Well, we really have the opposite, and it's a strength of ours, that we have a positive vision of what a good life is. We have the vision of universal brotherhood of man and woman, of the, the good, the deeply meaningful, um, positive experience in, in family life that is well-ordered, of what truly lifelong, loving, good marriage looks like, um, the beauty of motherhood, fatherhood. These things are extraordinarily beautiful. And so we need to find a way to make them feel resonant again because they've been so beaten down in the cultural imagination. But we can reclaim them, I think, more easily than we think. Noelle, I would love for you to tell people a little bit about what you do as a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and where people can find your work and your book. Sure. Um, So I co-direct a project called the Theology of Home Project with my co-author for Theology of Home. Her name's Carrie Gress. 
Um, and what we do there is we've got our fourth Theology of Home book coming out. We also run a website, sort of like a women's magazine, with daily content and original content and also um, a beautiful shop with handcrafted goods with the idea that craftsmanship matters and that's a place for us to reclaim as well. Um, so what we're really doing there at the EPPC is trying to create that third um, level of engagement that I was just talking about, that positive vision, reclaiming these good things that, you know, it's not simply enough to defend the family and the faith in policy and law, though those are vital, but we also have to defend them in the culture in through our friendships, through our promotion of positive values, that those things matter too. In some ways, the culture and particularly women have been largely captured through things like women's magazines and Sex in the City and Friends and all these shows that really had these deeply antagonistic messages. So we want to reclaim uh, the positive vision version of that in media and narrative as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And is there anything else that you would like to add before I let you go? Um, no, you can find me at noelmaring.com or theologyofhome.com to subscribe for free if you'd like and stay in touch there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Danielle. And thank you for this work um, in this very important area to help fight to defend our culture and our values and our traditions. So thank you. Conversations like today's are so important to have so we stay aware and we're informed so we know how to continue to fight and defend the First Amendment in our country. To stay up to date with everything that's happening, be sure to subscribe to First Liberty at firstlibertylive.com. You'll get a new episode every Thursday. And you can also check out our social media. You can follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, First Liberty Institute fighting for what matters most.